Welcome to Multiverse OQ, your guide to the comic book multiverse. Now in podcast form, I'm Luke. And I'm Devin. And this week we're covering... What if the X-Men had stayed in Asgard? And for this special momentous occasion, we have special guest podcast co-host with us. Uh, do you all want to introduce yourselves? Absolutely. I am Miles Stokes. And I'm Elizabeth Alley. And we do a show called Thor, The Lightning and the Storm, which is about Walter Simonson's 1980s run of Thor, which is probably the greatest comics run in the history of all the comics runs, and in the history of human creation in general, one of our crowning achievements. (laughs) And as podcasts go, it might have the most uh, varied and high-quality array of uh, comic book voices. (laughs) Yeah, I'd I'd have a hard time arguing. We stopped doing voices because we had complaints early on oh complaints complaints yeah i would yes. take that as a, as a challenge not as a correction <laughs> <laughs> okay well if it's uh miles and elizabeth uh approved i'll see what i can do devin i'm sorry <laughs> oh were the complaints from devin <laughs> uh, his ben Grimm impression specifically is oof yeah, I I was learning GarageBand at the time, and I've gotten better. But, but we are going to be covering What If Volume 2, Number 12, which was written and illustrated by Jim Valentino, with inks by Sam De La Rosa, letters by Paul Felix, and colors by Tom Vincent. And I feel like we should cover, at least briefly, what led into this. Oh man, there is so, so freaking much. Because this is a direct sequel to a couple of uh, X-Men and New Mutants annuals from the 80s, right? Uh, yeah, it was New Mutants special number one, and then X-Men annual number nine. Yeah, two of my personal favorite stories. And the other podcast that I do is Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. So this is like the perfect uh, the perfect merging of my, my two comic book loves, so very excited. Yeah, this is a good topic for me because on the few times I guest hosted, I ended up reading most of this stuff before, so I felt very well-versed. <laughs> yes. Uh, for those of you who want to have a better in-depth view, that was in the Explain the X-Men episode number 48, which is Guitar Solos of the Gods. Wow, you are more prepared than I am. Nice. <laughs> uh, I actually took full-length notes on those two issues beforehand and then abbreviated them for what was relevant for the podcast because it's a pretty long story yeah so listeners the the work we put in the behind the scenes efforts the blood sweat and tears here they come through to your grand benefit and both those issues were drawn by art adams which was amazing most definitely so previously in the specials loki with help from the enchantress ended up capturing storm who he had interest in because she was a member of the x-men who he wanted revenge on he found her attractive in a pretty racist way and while using the enchantress to capture storm he also ended up capturing the new mutants right because they were all hanging out on the island of kyranos after a big adventure they had where they uh, retrieved the previously shadow king possessed karma so they were all kind of uh recuperating and they, he thought mistakenly that they were the x-men right i believe so yeah. And then the Enchantress is like, why'd you bring me all these kids? I got a babysit now. <laughs> uh, Enchantress is delightful. I remember when we were reading, going through Cert War, Miles actually pointed out the one panel where Storm is fighting with everyone because, you know, at some point the Fantastic Four and the Avengers and everybody pitch in. And I guess that is the moment that Loki was like, hey, look at that, that awesome Mohawk lady. I need to add her to my collection. And she has thunder powers, or she's supposed to. Even better reason. We can use her to replace Thor. Yep, yep. And so Magic was able to quickly disperse the new mutants across various realms of Asgard, where they had their own adventures, while Magic stayed and was controlled by Enchantress, who worked to try and round them up. Oh, I was just going to say, and this is kind of, we've just, again, gone through Cert War, where we see kind of the softer side of Enchantress, or the the practical sort of, I'm going to work for the greater good, but it does also serve my own ends. So it's kind of chilling here to see her being so evil and cruel and, like, torturing Ileana, who is a teenage girl, you know, in a bikini chained to her wall. She kind of lost all the goodwill she built up with me there. Yeah, fair enough. 
Yeah, do you think that's more of a difference in take on Enchantress as a character, or do you think that it's, oh, nobody's going to judge her if she does this, these are just mortals, so I get to do what I want? I mean, I think it is true to her overall character. I mean, again, she's after what she wants. She's been known to hold petty grudges, although not as petty as her sister Lorelai, but she does seem to have a very kind of catty or one-upmanship relationship specifically with other magical women so it was just kind of kind of a shock it just kind of reminded me oh yeah enchantress has her moments but she's a bad guy yeah that is uh something where if you're unaware of the other podcasts we do we do a exiles inspired podcast called exiled and one of our current characters played by jen overstreet is Enchantress who is being regularly thrust into a heroic role, which is interesting. That's one of my favorite tropes when you have the like a uh, hardened wicked villain who has to be a hero and is sort of reluctantly getting better at it as time goes on. Yes, and it works a lot better than I think it did when Magic in the old Exiles series ended up joining the uh, Exiles and sort of did what you'd expect a villainous Ileana Rasputin to do, which was get things done the quickest way possible. She is nothing if not efficient. <laughs> so back in the uh, story, with some help from Carnilla the Norn Queen in the background, Magic was able to reach out to the X-Men through Kitty Pride for help. They were able to reach Asgard and started off on a rescue mission tracking down the various members of the New Mutants teams. So... Let's go over what happened to the relevant characters. Oh man, so much. I do enjoy that we get to see different of the nine realms of, uh, of existence, of, of the world tree, as the New Mutants are scattered. I think one of my favorites is how Cannonball of the New Mutants ends up in Nidavellir, the realm of the dwarves, which is kind of like the coal mines that he spent a lot of his adolescence working in, and he ends up uh, allying with Atri, the dwarf king, and gets all romantically involved, sort of almost, with Kindra, Atri's daughter, and it's just, it's all very charming. Except for the part where Loki is able to use Sam's presence there to force EA Tree to cast a new uh, Thunder Hammer for Storm. That is true, but as Atri himself says, I think Loki would have been able to find anything. You know, he, that was just that was just low hanging fruit for Loki. He's the master manipulator. Um, and then let's see, of the original New Mutants, we also had Sunspot ending up basically in, Asgard in an Asgardian mead hall and finding that his uh, solar powers are amplified in Asgard for whatever reason. And so he, you know, protects various women who are being harassed and gets in lots of bar fights. It's everything he wants. And he gets to be the big damn hero that he always hoped to be. So for him, this is perfect. He gets to be Conan. <laughs> Pretty much. Even better, he gets to be Conan, best friends of the Warriors 3. Yes, that is the dream. That's pretty rad. He's living a good life. One of the people I really liked was Wolfsbane because she finally gets like her own like little romantic partner in the um the Wolf Prince. Primhari. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, and in main continuity, that gets so totally out there. They end up having a baby that has to be sacrificed to see who can rule hell. That was in Peter David's X Factor. It got super weird and kind of awesome. I have to reread that now because I read that back in the day without having any of this background, and I'm just like, who's this other wolf dude? Like, what is happening? So now now I've got to go back and, and do that. Yeah, the new mutants seem to frequently fall into uh, interactions with the Asgardians. Like, there is the Journey into, Mis uh, Journey into Mystery crossover with the new mutants, where their uh, Asgardians sort of got merged into living normal uh, Midgardian lives. Mm -hmm. And then in the uh, somewhere around the 80s of the New Mutants comic, they got sent to Asgard once again, and Mirage actually ended up staying there at the end of that story. Comics, everybody. Comics. <laughs> well, and then we have uh, Karma, who has just been freed from being possessed by the Shadow King, and while the Shadow King, of course, was possessing her, he ate a lot of food and, and she's become kind of morbidly obese and because of that and because of the violation she's at a super low point and, and much like Balder back in, in Thor after he comes back from hell she's ready to die and much like Balder she ends up you know in the desert fighting a huge sand beast and protecting you know a, a young girl 
and it turns out to be like the best weight loss treatment ever. Yeah, so if you're looking to shed a few pounds, just uh, end up in the deserts of Asgard, uh, fight against some, a creature that far outmatches you, and hang out there for a number of months protecting somebody. It works every time. <laughs> that it does. Though, uh, on the list of people that did not have uh, good occasions, there was Cypher, uh, Doug Ramsey, who, because his powers are translating things, and because he ended up inside of a castle he was pretty much made to be a slave until he was saved by his best friend the techno organic warlock who was not doing well either because he had no regular sources of electrical energy and he refused to for the most part absorb the life force of living beings yeah like he made a, a dragon into a snack but he even felt very conflicted about that and only did that because the dragon was trying to kill him so i think he was like well it could be self-defense that way but yeah, he's having a tough time there. And then I think Magma's the uh, last person on the team. So Maz, do you want to cover Magma? Yeah, so Magma ends up in the realms of the fairy, which at this time in the Marvel Universe were sort of a half-and-half half mix between Svartalfheim, the realm of the Dark Elves in Norse, in Norse mythology, and just the sort of more British or Celtic fairy realm, the realm of the fair folk. And so much like tends to happen in the latter, they gave her a bunch of awesome food, which ended up turning her into one of them. So she gets long ears and long eyebrows, which I guess are a fairy thing, and basically stops being human. Uh, she can't really be near cold iron anymore, stuff like that. So she's having a bad time, and throughout this entire story, like, you kind of have to feel awful for her. Um, she was normally this proud, independent young woman, and now she's a slave to these magics that she doesn't fully understand. She's even afraid to, like, fly on Cannonball. Like, the, it's more than just a skin-deep transformation. Like, they changed her being, and the weirdest part of that is that she says, you know, her past as a human feels like a dream. Like, the further, the longer she's a fairy folk, the more she feels like she's trapped, you know, forever. It's a wide range of uh, reactions, and the new mutants are eventually able to free magic from the Enchantress, and they join up with the X-Men to stop Loki from giving Storm, who was under his thrall, her own uh, version of Mjolnir, which wasn't really named here, but eventually was sort of retconned to be named Stormbringer. Uh, actually, uh, off-edit thing, wasn't it Stormcaster? I think it was Stormbringer. Or was, I, I could be totally wrong, it's just, I remember, that seems surprisingly yeah, close to Stormbreaker. No. I know. Okay, you know yeah. what, I, I, I uh, stand entirely corrected. Feel free to, <laughs> to edit all that out. My bad, you were right. It's a well-honed, uh, multiversal cue podcast family tradition to correct people on air. <laughs> <laughs> well then. The X-Men tried to stop her, and it didn't work. Storm gathered her hammer, and when Wolverine tried to stop her, she ended up unleashing the force of uh, the storms upon Wolverine, who at the time was a lot more mortal than he was. Well, I can't say nowadays because he's dead. Slash <laughs> man. But uh, he sacrificed himself to wake her up from the enchantment, and when Hela came to collect Wolverine's soul, the team stood against her and uh, stopped that from happening. And she takes that badly. Yeah. <laughs> she hates being de denied her soul treats. Well, I mean, if you're going to travel across the nine realms to collect a soul, you want to have something come out of it. Yeah, it's like a bad Craigslist interaction. You're like, you said you're going to be here to pick up this futon, and where are you? <laughs> See, now I'm just getting caught on souls and futons being comparable. <laughs> like, a lot of the souls on Craigslist are pretty crappy, like they have holes in them, or they have weird stains. They have hidden defects that you don't know about until it's too late. Well, and then if you try and, like, deconstruct it, and, like, they don't come and pick it up on that day, you're stuck without a bed, but you also can't reconstruct it just for that one day. It's an awful situation all together. Yep, yep, agreed. You know, I'm kind of feeling for Hela more than I did before. Like, I saw her as this force of horrible oblivion, but, you know, it's it's hard work. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Loki's plan was pretty much stopped, so he decided to force the team to choose whether or not they wanted to stay or leave. But if anybody decided to stay in Asgard, they would all be forced to. And normally, Wolfsbane makes the, not necessarily adult, but the more responsible decision to return home to Midgard. 
instead of staying in Asgard with her wolf prince boyfriend. But the uh, what comes across in the story here is what if Wolfsbane's love for Hrimhari was so great that she chose to stay instead, and this is set on Earth 904. And I gotta say, like, from the moment this picks up and branches off timeline-wise, uh, the artist we have here, was it uh, Jim Valentino? Yes. That's a pretty passable uh, art atoms. Like, the art is not too uh, drastically different. Like, it still has the same feel as the original Asgardian War storyline, which I appreciated. Oh, yeah. I did some research on Jim Valentino since I was less familiar, and along with writing a number of what-ifs and doing most of the 90s Guardians of the Galaxy series, along with his creator-owned book Normal Man, he was part of the group that left Marvel to form Image, where he ended up running the Shadowline imprint, which included Shadowhawk, and then eventually he became the head publisher of Image, which led to Robert Kirkman and Brian Michael Bendis becoming the forces that they are now. And he lives in Portland, actually. Yeah, yeah. So if you come hang out in the Portland scene, you, you could run into him. If only we'd had more foresight, maybe he could have told us about the art himself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. The team is divided. Mirage, uh, Wolfsbane, Sunspot, Cannonball, and Rogue, who can apparently touch Asgardians without hurting them and without having the normal interaction that she has. That is never explained, uh have places here as does storm and with those uh nine people or and with that group of people willing to stay cyclops being the mature adult of the team ends up putting it up to a vote and it goes nine to eight with uh nightcrawler and magic also deciding to stay here and loki trying to be the uh nice guy and i think he realized where he made the mistake the last time he tangled with the X-Men, he's like, okay, if you want to stay here, you get to stay here. If you want to go home, you get to go home. Yeah, he's been trying to curry favor with those who sit above in shadow, who are these uh, sort of gods to the gods that I believe were first introduced in the X-Men Alpha Flight crossover, and later on become a really big deal in Thor Disassembled, which was the uh, the story that ended the Thor line for a couple of years before Straczynski uh, brought it back. So they're, they're a big deal, and I always love it when they show up, and... You know, Loki's big motivation being uh, to try to please them, having this master manipulator trying to manipulate those way more powerful than him. I always enjoy the hell out of that. (laughs) He has to give it the old college try. So about Rogue, you know, I was interested in that too. So the copy of the Asgardian Wars that Miles lent me, of course, has the X-Men Alpha Flight story in it. And there, of course, her powers are cured because Madeline Pryor, who was given, you know, they're all in Asgard. They're all given Asgardian powers. They're all made to their be their ultimate selves. Madeline Pryor has healing powers and so heals Rogue. So I was like, maybe... She, that was Asgardian magic, so she knew if she stayed there, she could get that Asgardian magic treatment again. You know, they just kind of finger-waved it. But at the same time, in Rogue's very first appearance, she totally absorbed the powers of Thor himself in Asgardian, so I'm not sure that I buy this part. It, it contributes to the story, I'll give it that, but that was strange. That she could absorb Thor's power, does that mean even when she was a villain, she was worthy? Was that like a, you know, a, a sneak peek about her ch- later change of heart? Oh man, no, I don't think she was able to lift the hammer she just uh, had other okay. thory stuff sure 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 like long golden hair and strong shoulders <laughs> <laughs> a booming voice <laughs> a good cape <clears throat> and fantastic cats <laughs> that's like an asgardian standby yeah it's true it's true well then the other thing about this is that warlock says he will die if he stays and storm is like okay, let's stay, and she casts a deciding vote. <laughs> yeah, that was strange to me that any of the mutants or X-Men would choose to stay knowing that it would uh, that it would kill Warlock. Well, and that may have put uh, part of Wolfsbane's decision at hand, though sort of going back to the rogue thing, we do find out that Sunspot has a lot more energy, so maybe there's part of this ambient energy that Rogue is naturally absorbing, so like her battery is full up, so she just can't absorb more from the Asgardians. Yeah, or it gives her greater control over her powers, like she's at her ultimate potential. Yeah, sort of an Earth's yellow sun with Superman kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or the right. futuristic suns that power uh, Superman 1 million, which we are covering. <laughs> and we get like a brief splash of the team of X-Men that gets sent back down to Earth, because 
the New Mutants no longer have enough members to exist as their own team, and X-Factor gets folded in, so it's a team of Cyclops, Wolverine, Marvel Girl, Beast, Angel, Iceman, Phoenix, Colossus, Shadowcat, Karma, and Magma, who become this new X-Men, and it would be a really weird team, because with X-Factor never really forming up the same way, I don't think we'd have Madeline Pryor entering into the same situation. Cameron Hodge would never affect or influence X-Factor the way that he does. And there's just infinite possibilities for how this turns out on Earth. I kind of want this this what-if to like have its own spin-off. Yeah, that's what I find with uh, some of my favorite uh, what-if issues is like, you want to see more. The things they just briefly reference, you're like, hey, turn this into a miniseries. Like, where, where would this go? Because like, where did Warlock go? That's what I want that's right. exactly what we're exactly. like, yeah, yeah. So I was positing that maybe uh, Marvel Girl there is Warlock, you know, shape-shifting into, into Marvel Girl, and that's why she has such a small costume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so some of these costumes, I, I will say, to the book's credit, uh, even though Marvel Girl has an incredibly skimpy costume, so does Wolverine. Like, if you look, that dude's got fully bare, fur, fur-covered legs. Like, so I think he's wearing that same kind of little one-piece that, that Jean is, so, you know, equal opportunity. Opportunity objectification. I guess that's cool. Sure, sure. Well, he really liked the Asgardian costume that he was forced into, and so you know, if you find out that you like wearing kilts, you keep wearing them. <laughs> true, true. Now I'm just imagining Wolverine going around everywhere in a utility kilt. <laughs> if anyone could pull it off, he could. But uh, that is not where the focus of the story falls, unfortunately. Though, like Inferno would be like vastly different in that world. Like, every single event would. What would yeah. even happen to Dazzler? Yeah. Yeah, maybe Dazzler the movie was never made. Where does that fall in continuity here? Oh, man. <laughs> maybe this is a world where Scott, Madeline, and Jean become peaceful co-parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I would love to see that. No no demonic forces. Nastier and Sim are just left twiddling their thumbs in limbo with nothing to do. No cable? Oh, in a world without oh, cable. Oh, maybe. Okay, backpedal. Maybe we don't want this. I mean, the entire pouch <laughs> industry would just go out of business without that guy. <laughs> the economy would be crushed. Yep, yep. Deadpool can't keep it going all by himself. <laughs> well, no, with the uh, New Mutants being canceled, Rob Liefeld would have had to take cable to the other series that he looked into bringing them into, which was Alpha Flight. So we <gasps> get Canadian cable. Yeah. Ah, okay. No, that's that's a real life what if I always wanted to see right there. Like that would have been so bizarre and interesting, and maybe Alpha Flight would have become this incredibly prominent book, and they would have turned into Alpha Force later on. And Cable could keep Puck in one of his pouches. <laughs> <laughs> Back in Asgard, we get a brief montage of the various uh, scenes that are going on. So Wolfsbane and Frimhari continue to fall in love. Uh, Cypher gets a job as the official and first librarian of Asgard, which raises the question of if you've been around for thousands of years and you have libraries and collections of scrolls, how are you the first librarian? I mean, I guess it just was really disorganized. Like, it was just scattered all the hell over the place. The only thing, they, the only organization that had ever been done was when Loki occasionally would get bored. I bet they never heard of the Dewey Decimal System. It's another thing of instance of Asgard being dazzled by human ingenuity, you know? Yeah, they, they got really into assault weapons right before their assault on Hell in the 80s. Maybe card catalogs were similarly impressive. They moved away from the uh, Crack of Doom Decimal System where it was just how big the uh, tails are and how great the foes that were vanquished are. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I might redo all my books in the Crack of Doom style. <laughs> It's, uh, they're, they're very thick because the fonts have to get uh, really large to match all of the, the gravitas contained within. <laughs> yeah, so Cannonball marries Kendra, the daughter of the Dwarf King, and it, it's like he finds a new family. I mean, he finds kind of a new father and a, and a new place. I like the way that Miles was equating the Dwarf's kingdom to like the coal mines that Cannonball grew up in. So it seems like he really did find his place. Plus, he's adding his height to the gene pool. That's true. We're going to have some taller dwarves going mm -hmm, forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Sunspot and Nightcrawler both just become uh, kind of uh, swashbuckling adventurers hanging out with the Warriors 3 and apparently getting in even more bar fights according to the panels we see them in, which I gotta say, I totally buy. 
And then we have Rogue falling in love with Fandral the Dashing, which, okay, I mean, that's cool. Like, I kind of would have liked to see Rogue have some adventures of her own, but this whole new world has opened up to her that she's never been able to experience before. So, and Fandral, you know, hey, aim high. He, he is very dashing. <laughs> very dashing. <laughs> and he's sort of a less lazy version of Gambit. You know, kind of that. I mean, Fandral's got a bit of sleaze, but nowhere near the sleaze of Remy LeBeau. And no pink. No pink breastplate. <laughs> I consider that a downside. I well, love yeah, that no, pink breastplate. You're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> but maybe he pulled out his green tracksuit from that one issue with Thor and like showed it to Rogue. Thor, Rogue also wears green. Maybe that's why they got together. They mm-hmm. both are very committed to green color palettes. They're, they're going to be a well-coordinated couple. <laughs> it's going to be a beautiful well, wedding. They're going to have a well, kid who's going to be like, I wear purple. They're like, no. <laughs> Well, and you know, Fandral moves a lot faster than Gambit because he uh, doesn't have metal boots on, which is why he's called the dashing, right? As opposed to the uh, <laughs> the clanging or the stomping. <laughs> That's great. Um, and so it's interesting to me that Mirage, she just lives as a Valkyrie. In a way, her story here, at least in the, in the lead up to the What If uh, main plot, is the most straightforward. Like, she becomes a Valkyrie in the previous X-Men New Mutants annuals, and that's kind of the whole deal after that. She just flies around being awesome and presumably collecting the souls of the Valiant dead. Well, and in the Asgardian Wars, they kind of equated it to, like, the, you know, the, the history of the Cheyenne, like how her people would have been if the white man hadn't come to America. So she's kind of living her ultimate dream. Somewhat Norse-tinged, but yeah. yeah. And then uh, the last one is Magic, who, having replaced the Enchantress, just Enchantresses a lot more and has a fantastic hat. Yes, that is a very good hat. That was a, a strong contender for the Hell's Haberdashery Award. And, uh... Then sort of continuing the Asgardian politic that was uh, starting up, the Asgardians get together for the All Thing, which is this meeting of all of the Asgardians to pick a new leader, since at the time, and spoilers for you all's podcast, Odin was lost to the world, and so Loki decides to nominate Storm to be the new Allfather, because, uh, you know, it's good to have your own horse in the race, so to speak. Exactly, and that totally fits Loki for me. I mean, you know, he'd love to be in charge himself, but being the power behind the throne, that seems a lot more his style. And since he had previously so successfully manipulated Aurora, I can see him going for that. Although it is kind of strange that, um, you know, she's uh, as amenable to this concept as she is, given that he just totally betrayed her in the previous story. Yeah, I thought it was a little weird that she fought off his enchantment to stay and then fall under another enchantment, but I guess that's kind of the price you pay for... For her getting her like storm powers back well and we do later on see that loki has a lot more power than he would normally have so maybe because she is constantly wielding the uh hammer she's more easily controlled sure sure yeah and at the time, Thor is not around because he had been turned into a frog because of Loki's machinations. Indeed he had. And one of the things I really appreciate about this what-if issue is it is situated so precisely and specifically in a certain era of Walter Simonson's run of Thor. Like You can tell exactly what issues it takes place in, even without the little editorial captions reminding you. So uh, the writer definitely, definitely did his homework on this one. Yeah, I... I really want to see some of the other what-ifs that he's read to see if he brought the same level. But, I mean, it helps that you had a very controlled use of Asgard and of, like, that whole plot line tying that in from the very start. So Thor presumably wouldn't be very happy with this development, but who's really unhappy is Carnilla, the Queen of the Norns, because she wants Balder, her would-be boyfriend to become the Allfather. And this is interesting because uh, as much as, you know, this does line up quite well with Simonson's Thor, this part doesn't. In Simonson's Thor, Carnilla was quite opposed to Balder becoming uh, the head of Asgard, and even earlier on to Balder going to help the Asgardians at all. She just wanted to hang out and have, like, a quiet, pleasurable life with him. So 
That said, when Claremont wrote the Asgardian Wars, he made the same, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a mistake, but the same choice of interpretation. So it's consistent here with the Asgardian Wars, but not with Simonson's Thor, which maybe is more detailed than most people would care about, but this is how my brain works. I, this keeps me up at night. <laughs> Fortunately, they got the most important part right, which is Carnilla has a completely awesome hat. Yeah. <laughs> Carnilla's headdress game is always on point. Yep, yep, yes. yep. Even when all she wants to do is Nornheim and chill. <laughs> I want a t-shirt that says that Oh man Nornheim and chill That's exactly right I'm gonna get on Urban Dictionary and make some edits immediately after this episode <laughs> But this also The situation leads to strange bedfellows Because Hela shows up Reveals that Loki has ensorcelled Storm And the Asgardians She's angry because she didn't get Wolverine's soul So she wants to team up with Carnilla For revenge and Carnilla is down to help out. Yeah, of course. She's a big revenge proponent. That's sort of her jam. She's, you know, largely been a villain in Thor up until this point, albeit an often sympathetic one. So, you know, that fits. And so back at the Althing, a red-caped figure scoops up Loki. Storm flies after and is soon joined by the other Asgardians, along with the leftover mutants. And we have this race starting, and then it immediately cuts to a weird side story that pays off in the end, but uh, it's Volstag who's out with his sick daughter Hildy, who is trying to find a cure for her, which requires finding Surtur's sword. Yeah, and this actually, I was pretty impressed. This is almost panel for panel, word for word, exactly what happened in an analogous scene in the Thor title at, at, at during this era. So it was captured pretty perfectly, and it resolves the same way. Volstag himself starts to weaken as he gets close to Searcher's fallen blade and accidentally knocks over a stack of rocks, which turns into an avalanche which smashes the machine Loki had been using to draw power from the sword to fuel his own sorcery and make it stronger. So once again, we have that same resolution, and back at the All Thing, that has the same effect, which is that Frog Thor, who previously had just been fighting Storm, you know, hammer to hammer, uh, once Storm realized that um, her boss had been kidnapped, uh, turns back into Thor and gets his mind back and his physical appearance back, and Loki realizes, oh, this is not going according to plan. Time for plan B. Because of course he has a plan B. He even says, who would I be if I don't have an, you know, an extra plan at my sleeve? But as a good moment of Loki's uh, ego getting to him, while Thor in frog form and storm were fighting... He tried to argue that, oh yeah, no, Storm should definitely be the Allfather. Look at how she's fighting to the death. And Hela hears the words to the death and moves in to try and steal Storm's soul. And Sunspot, seeking to save her, jumps in front of the blast and Hela kills him. Ugh. Yeah, just turns him down to a skeleton and then to dust. And that that is brutal. I mean, it's a very what-if thing to do in that when you have an alternate universe that's not going to be written about very much, you can have a high body count. And I think this story kills fewer characters than it could, but that one right there has a lot of weight. Like, it really, it really hits you right in the gut. Especially because Sunspot was living his best life, you know? Like, he finally found a place where he didn't have to worry about his father, and he didn't have to worry about being a mutant, and he was just having a ball. Yeah, it is a, like, sad moment. I mean, this is where the sad stuff has to start coming in, so you can have some loss in the end. But uh, Loki, realizing that his plans are being undone, like you'd said, he sends in an army of giants to uh, mess with the Asgardians and hopefully stop Hela and uh, get his way. Yep, and then the, the hits just keep on coming because we also get an army of the dead from Hela. We get an army of, like, Carnilla's various monstery things that live in her country. And so it's three-on-one against the Asgardians. It's not looking good for our impressively hatted heroes here. And then Hela comes in again for Storm, uh, but Mirage stops her, claiming her soul as a Valkyrie. And just as a weird side note, because I don't think it's been discussed so far, what is Nornheim supposed to be? Because there's only three Norns in there who yeah. uh, control fate. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Like, 
given that it's called Nornheim, it's not as related to the fates, the Norns, as you would think. Like, the way Nornheim, at least in Simonson's run, which is what I'm most familiar with, is portrayed, it's sort of a small, independent, like, city-state within Asgard's borders that is nonetheless uh, self-governing. And its population, um, it's got some humans, but Carnilla's guards and stuff tend to look kind of like orcs from uh, Lord of the Rings. So the Norns are definitely in Thor, and Nornheim is definitely in Thor, and they're kind of each their own thing, as far as I know. Maybe that's different earlier on in the Kirby run, but at least in Simonson's run, you do kind of wonder why they even bother having the same name. You know, just come to Nornheim, see our fantastic Norns, change your fate, walk through our big desert of magic. (laughs) (laughs) Fight, Fight a sand demon, lose a lot of weight, protect the innocents. Right. It's uh, just a very specialized spa. (laughs) Jane Fonda totally should have jumped on this in the 80s. But as the uh, fighting continues, Thor charges in and Loki tries to escape from his uh, brother, who is reasonably seeking revenge, but he is stopped and taken away by an unseen force. And the Asgardians are being crushed, but then... Cannonball and the dwarves rush in. Yeah, so we now have a fifth army having joined the fray. Like, this is apparently a very large battlefield to fit everyone. Like, it seems like it must be getting pretty cozy in there. And it definitely echoes a cert war for me. Like, it always seemed like, oh, we're about to be crushed. Here's another army. Oh, we're about to be crushed. Oh, here's another hero and his army. So it's, a, again, a wonderful nod to Simonson. Yeah, I always enjoy when What If Stories not only uh, bring in the story content of the stories they're inspired by, but also the feel of them, sort of some of the uh, the themes, and this one definitely does. And so Carnilla, meanwhile, had captured Magic, who had tried to attack her, but Boulder shows up and is able to get her to relent, because he promises if she pulls back her army and frees Magic, he'll agree to be the king of Nornheim with her. And that has often been one of Carnilla's biggest goals, which is to get this being of, like, pure uh, ethics and morality, Balder, to be her lover, to be her partner. And so him finally going for it, I buy that. I mean, that's basically the one thing that would have convinced her to change her path and, you know, soften her her hatred and her vengeance for everything that was going on. Maybe this was her uh, plan all along, pretending she wanted Balder to be the all thing, knowing that somehow... You know, she turned it to her own advantage. Uh, but back at the battle, I mean, apparently five <laughs> armies wasn't enough. We now have another one because Hrimhari and Wolfsbane come in with their army of wolves. So it's not now not only a cozier battlefield, but also a furrier one. <laughs> Are you calling them furries? I mean, I'm just saying furries would probably appreciate this this particular faction. But Storm, of course, is just getting really tired of, of Hela and comes in with a crack-a-thoom and knocks her off her feet. And as the Norn army gets called back and the battle is starting to shift, Eitri, the uh, king of the dwarves, is slain. Frimhari gets killed in front of Wolfsbane. And Magic is like, hey, Thor, uh, you know that Hela's out here. You should probably not let her do whatever she wants. And he tries to get Hela to stand down, and she refuses because she just keeps getting denied souls. She's had the Asgardians invade her realm, and so the Valkyries surround her and, like, magically are able to kill her, and that causes all the fighting to stop. Yeah, and this is this is a big deal. I mean, they have literally killed not just the goddess, but in some ways the concept, the manifestation of death. Which is, uh, I don't know, that's, that's something that you can really only do in a what-if story, because that basically rewrites the cosmos in a lot of ways. So that was a truly awesome scene. Made even more awesome by the fact that Hela may have the greatest headgear in the entire Marvel Universe, especially as portrayed in this issue and previously by Art Adams in the preceding issues. Certainly. And so Cypher and Magic show up with the ancient Asgardian rules, and Mirage already knows what she has to do. And she vanishes, and we don't really get to see what happens until afterwards. Yeah, and um, I don't know, just the the illustration we'll see. Well, I guess we'll get to that uh, later, but the way that plays out artistically, I really appreciate it. 
So the all thing reconvenes and Thor renounces his birthright because he's always going to do that because he always wants to go back to Midgard. But he promotes Storm as king since Balder now has his own kingdom. Yeah, in the main uh, continuity, of course, Balder did end up becoming the ruler of Asgard in Odin's absence. And for a similar reason, Thor didn't want to fully dedicate himself to Asgard. He thought Balder would be a good choice. With Balder out of the way, he thinks Aurora is a good choice. And yeah, I mean, Aurora is smart and capable and compassionate and powerful. Like, if you're going to have the leader of your big magic kingdom, you could do a hell of a lot worse than Aurora Monroe. So I wonder, now that she is basically Odin, does that make her immortal? Or would she be immortal who would have just a normal, I mean, comics mutant lifespan? Oh, that's a really good question, yeah, because if you're used to having your ruler live for, like, thousands and thousands of years, and then you have a new ruler who lives for maybe, like, 50 more, that's a, that's a bit of a change. Yeah, yeah, that kind of seems like a short-term solution to a long-term problem. <laughs> Though we do know from the uh, Zero episode of your, your guys' podcast, the only reason that the Asgardians live so long is that they eat the magical golden apples. So uh, Storm eats those. I forgot about that. You know You're that, right. That is an excellent point, and we do certainly have precedent of mortals eating the apples of Yadun and uh, living longer, so yeah, she just has to have a, uh, a diet um, centralized around fruit, which, you know, hopefully she'd get used to digestively pretty quickly, because at first <laughs> that might be a little challenging, and then she'll be fine. So yes, excellent point, and and bringing it back to our own podcast in a way that even we forgot, I, well done. Absolutely. <laughs> Making pointless continuity bits connect together is my favorite thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got Thor as a full-time Avenger, Storm as the new All-Mother, with Cypher as her vizier and also librarian. I love the word vizier. Yeah. I have no greater point. I just like to say vizier, that's vizier, all. Vizier, vizier. It's nice to see it in a more positive context, because normally it's we hear about Jafar the vizier, and that's not a good context for that word. <laughs> Bring, redeeming the word vizier. Thank you, Cypher. Thanks, Doug. And uh, Cannonball ends up becoming the new Dwarf King, and he makes peace with the Asgardians, which had never happened before, which is why whenever they needed something made by the dwarves, they usually had to pay a pretty high price. Yeah, or in Loki's case, just manipulate them and threaten them into doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nightcrawler ends up joining the Warriors 3, replacing Fandral, because Rogue and Fandral get married, which, good for them. Yeah. Yeah. I can see them living a long and happy life and basically just uh, romancing the whole time. See, Mirage becomes the new ruler of hell, where she actually keeps peace with the Asgard and uses magic as her emissary, which makes total sense. And Balder and Carnilla, uh, yeah, they rule their own realm together, and there's peace there as well. So, in a way, after the battle of the all of the armies, things are more peaceful than they've ever been in the Nine Realms. Yeah, because we've got Rain as the Wolf Queen, and it turns out, you know, that... Her boyfriend died, but he gave her the future because she gives birth to three children. And I like how whenever anybody dies in Asgard, they say, I'm giving you the future. I'm, I'm gifting you the future uh -huh. somehow. So again, good continuity. Yeah, that right there, Elizabeth and I were talking about this before we started recording. And so Rain, Wolfsbane, is like 14 years old. And so, I mean... I guess on the one hand, she turns into a wolf. In wolf years, she's she's much older. But nonetheless, this part gave me pause. I mean, P-A-U-S-E. You know. <laughs> I mean, at least she's got this whole wolf army slash family, so she's got a good support network, which any teen mom needs. You know, it takes a village to raise a litter of werewolves. <laughs> I like how one's full-on wolf, one's in the middle, and one is like a little tiny baby rain. Right, which of course raises the question, can they all transform from birth? Exactly. I mean, toddlers are hard enough. Like, Elizabeth, you're oh, a mom. Can you imagine if your kid was a, a oh werewolf? Oh my god, if my daughter could turn into a wolf, that would, that would, I would be so tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then you have all the parental politics. It's like, oh, you've invited two of our kids to your uh, child's birthday party, but not our third one. Is it because he's a full-on wolf? <laughs> Man, yeah, you have all these social dynamics you have to navigate as well. Yep, you shed too much at one party and you're blacklisted forever. Oh, yeah. 
Now, we talked about, you know, wanting to see certain plot lines followed uh, into, like, miniseries or whatever from What If Issues. I mean, yes, let's check in with the various X-Men that went back to Earth and formed their new team, but let's also see the adventures of Rain Sinclair, Teen Mom Queen. (laughs) And uh, the final resolution we have is for Loki, who had uh, turned out uh, he was brought to those who sit above in shadow. And... He does his best to make it seem like this was his entire plan because he's brought mortals to power. He's brought peace to all of Asgard. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you did a good job. So you know what? We're going to give you your heart's desire. We know how you've always wanted to have the power to rule the nine worlds. And they stick him at the end of time as Asgard is being sucked into a black hole and Loki goes insane. Yeah, total monkey's paw right there, which that's always one of the things I enjoy when Loki interacts with those who sit above in shadow. He's a master manipulator. He's got nothing on them, and he gets played, like, every time. And, like, the one other question I have about here is, like, later on in a lot of Thor comics, (laughs) we see Ragnarok happen multiple times, so I sort of wonder how that affects this whole universe that's been set up when they have gods who have been dead and replaced... Like, what happens when Ragnarok happens? Does Hell come back, or does Mirage still stay as the ruler of Hell? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, it seems like it was a pretty permanent replacement with Daniel Moonstar as the new Hell, as the new Hella. Like, she's even drawn in this very sinister fashion when we when we see the resolution of that. So, given how central to Ragnarok. Hela's armies of the dead coming forth is. I mean, the fact that A, the armies already came forth way early in our battle of a billion armies, and B, we have a new kindler, gentler death. Uh, Loki's also, you know, sent outside of time, so he, he can't do all of his mischief. Um, I mean, I feel like Ragnarok, the gods might have a much better chance. It might not be the twilight of the gods so much as the brief dimming and then resurgence of the gods. Sure, sure. Although it makes me wonder about the Enchantress, because she is stuck in... <clears throat> What do you call it? Not Inferno. Limbo. Uh, limbo? He's, the Enchantress is stuck in Limbo, which makes me realize that in this alternate universe, I'm sure they still had Inferno. But this time, it was the Enchantress using her wiles to break out of Limbo and create Inferno. Well, and that is one thing I tried to... Yes. Well, and that was something that I tried to uh, look into, because we never see how Enchantress actually gets out of Limbo in the mainstream Marvel continuity. Oh, it's just yeah. she shows up for more stories later on. So I have a feeling that she would have been pretty quick to get out of there. Mm-hmm. She's wily as hell. I mean, Ilyana, yes, is clever, but she's fueled more by like rage and vengeance and tends not to think things through quite as well. So yeah, I feel like Amora would have no trouble. And I feel like Loki also said something about part of the condition of him releasing the characters being uh, magic letting Amora out, but I don't recall perfectly or he said all this shall be undone so kind of like a blanket reboot but yeah i mean the enchantress is immortal she's very good tactically she has her weaknesses in terms of you know holding grudges and things but she's smart so i'm pretty sure she got one over on sim and naster and got her way out of there one way or the other and uh yeah that wraps up the uh summary of the issue but Sort of combining our two podcasts into the show things, I believe you all have some awards to bring into the series. Indeed, we have something we do on Thor the Lightning and the Storm, which is our Recognitions of Merit. And I think we're, uh, we have four of them, we have four hosts here, so uh, I think we're each going to take one, right? Yes. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, start off with the Crack-A-Doom Award for the greatest sound effect in this issue. Uh, and I tackled that one. The one I gave it to was Fatasp, which was the sound that was made when Loki ported the X-Men who decided to go back to Earth. Yeah, I like that one as well. It's oh, this yeah. sort of uh, this sort of abrupt but uh, almost liquidy kind of sound effect. Like you, you can just see reality kind of rippling outward for a second when it hits. Yeah. Next up, we have the Hell's Haberdashery Award. Uh, for the greatest uh, headgear and or hat in the issue. And I'll, I'll go for that one. And, oh, uh, dude, it is it is no contest in this issue because this issue has Art Adams' version of Hela, Goddess of Death. And, like, 
I don't even know where to start with the thing she has on her head. I mean, yes, it's just this sort of tight Batman-style cowl, but then from there it goes into these gigantic, almost blade-wing tendril things that extend out like a full four feet on either side of her head and these giant menacing spikes of doom. I mean, on the one hand, she can't go through doors. On the other hand, she's hella. She can teleport. It's fine. You know, maybe that's how she uh, even developed the ability to teleport, realizing that otherwise she wasn't going to be able to even, like, get to the bathroom in her castle. Who knows? (laughs) But yes, this right here, probably my favorite headgear in all of Marvel Comics and probably my favorite rendition of it. So, so pleased by all of this. (laughs) And I guess that brings us to the Whatsoever Holds This Hammer Award for the most worthy uh, non-human character or object. And I'll be... Uh, bringing that one, I would like to nominate Stormbringer, which is Storm's Hammer. It's her own version of the classic Mjolnir. It's got a smaller design, which isn't necessarily as nice as some of the other hammers, but she makes it work. She's able to stand up against Thor, she's able to stand up against Hela, and because of that, she is ultimately able to become the ruler of Asgard, which... Good job, Stormbringer. (laughs) And... That brings us to the last award, which is the most metal moment. And I felt like there was no contest for this. It's definitely when all the Valkyries uh, surround Hela and kill death. Like, it doesn't get more metal than killing death. And it's such an amazing panel. She's just surrounded by energy. And it's like you see her kind of dissolve or turn to ash. And it's just, it, it was amazing. Yeah, I really liked the uh, the pseudo Kirby dots on the full page spread where she disintegrates that just like uh, sort of fill her green silhouette as she's eradicated from rea- from reality. It's a nice uh, nice sense of just this shredding and disintegrating and undoing of this incredibly powerful being. And again, a good example of something you can pretty much only do in a what if issue. And that brings us to the final event before we uh, wrap this completely up, which is Trials of the Multiverse. Where on MultiversalQ.com, we have our list of Trials of the Multiverse, ranking every universe from best to worst. The top is Earth-962A2, which is what if J. Jonah Jameson adopted Spider-Man. And at the bottom of our list is uh, our 418th universe, which is Earth-23492, which is the Spidey Baby universe, because Spidey Baby is a... Inhuman monstrosity that should not exist anywhere. Now I need to read both of those issues, both the top and the bottom. They both sound, well, memorable, definitely. Spidey Baby One was like one of those like joke what if issues. Okay, gotcha. So sort of a a Muppet Babies feel to it almost. Yes, uh, including the fact that uh, Mary Jane has no head, so we only see her as a body. (gasps) Oh man, very direct then, yeah. Oh wow, I do have to see this now. And uh, so what we'd like to invite you to is uh, to help place this on our Trials of the Multiverse list. And we will help discern the list because it is as confusing as the multiverse. It is it is as confusing as the multiverse itself. I would put it at least in the top 25% because one, it's a really awesome story. But two, it fits so well into, you know, Thor continuity, X-Men continuity, and kind of echoing the feel of both Art Adams and Walter Simonson's run. So I feel like not only is it an entertaining story, it's really well executed within the Marvel universes. Multiverses. Yeah, I mean, we have a few inconsistencies, like the thing with Rogue doesn't make any sense, Warlock just vanishes out of the story completely, but those are minor. Really, it uh, I think it does what it sets out to do, and it also posits a universe that I definitely want to hear more about in multiple directions. Which is something that a lot of the universes don't do. It's just, oh, we've told this story, nothing else has really changed that we care about. Yeah, the changes here just ripple outward, you know, onto Midgard with the new X-Men team. Uh, Asgard is completely altered as well. The characters, you know, they all have very different lives than they otherwise would. Like, you could you could continue this with really anybody, from from Teen Queen Mom, Wolfsbane, to Cyclops' giant X-Men team, to, you know, Nightcrawler running around with Volstag and uh, Hogan getting in bar fights. To Enchantress's Inferno, which I really, really want now. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about that. <laughs> Do we want to start reviewing this around? Uh, are both of you familiar with Marvel 1602? 
Uh, yes, yes, that was the yes. Neil Gaiman story, right? Yes. yes. And then we also went and followed up with every other comic that takes place in Marvel 1602. That's so much? Wow. Yes. Yes. Uh, that is currently number 26 on our list. Uh, how do you say it is compared to that? You know, I have not read 1602. I've seen it because I worked for a major comic book retailer, but I never actually got to sit down and read it all. Oh, it's it's really good. Um, I would say... So this is a good one. I think 1602 is a better one just because it's a more it's a more unified story that stands alone on its own quite well and encompasses the entire Marvel Universe. So good, but not as good as 1602, I would say. I can accept that. And I would agree with that. How familiar are you all with the uh, Agents of Atlas? I love Agents of Atlas. Okay, see, there's one I haven't I read. I love so. it so much. What do you oh, think, Elizabeth? Uh, <clears throat> you know, I... Agents of Atlas, for people who are unfamiliar, it's a lot of old, old, old Marvel characters back when Marvel was known as, as Atlas comics. And it's it's like all the joy of long-term characters in a totally awesome group without <coughs> a lot of the continuity problems because they dropped out of sight for a long time. And I especially loved uh, Jeff Parker's run on that. So this, again, this is this is good. Not not as good as Agents of Atlas. Now, the universe that we have on is actually Earth 9904, which is the original what-if that defined the uh, Agents of Atlas before they uh, became part of the main Marvel continuity. So you had sort of that initial idea, but not the fully uh, developed see. out team. Okay, yes. okay. If, if that is the case, I would put this above that then. So then what we have right between those two is Space Punisher, and have you all read that series? And I, no, but I really want to. Just based on the name, that's enough. No. <laughs> so what's, what does what uh, you guys take on Space Punisher? Uh, better or, or worse than, um, than what if the X-Men stayed in Asgard? I feel like X-Men stayed in Asgard has a greater continuity and a more of a fullness of ideas than space punisher had because space punisher is pretty much what if there was a punisher who was in space who ended up fighting all of these space villains of heroes so there's like a space <laughs> doctor octopus who has octopus legs and uh like space red skull and he even fights the space <laughs> avengers this is amazing but i kind of want to turn that on its head and make it into an hgtv uh series space punisher where instead he takes like spaces like mud rooms or like entryways and he like demolishes them and remodels them space punisher <laughs> okay clearly the four of us need to quit podcasting and start a new business and just do this Well, Devin, I'm good with putting it right above Space Punisher, right under Marvel 1602, because Marvel 1602 does include Marvel 1602 Spider-Man, who, when he shoots webs, it goes thwip with an extra P and E at the end. Nice. (laughs) I've always heard that Spider-Man, if you're going to read one, that Spider-Man 1602 is the top of the the crop. Once again by Jeff Parker. Well, then you have 1602 Jameson. Parker, who also lives in Portland. I've learned, like, everyone lives in Portland. It's true. In their hearts. Uh, but, uh, Devin, are you good putting it right under Marvel 1602? Yeah. So our new number 26, uh, our new number 27 on the list is Earth 904. Excellent. X-Men stayed in Asgard. Ah, uh, so moot it be, so let it be written. Or at least, you know, spoken. Yes. And uh, so that brings us up to the wrap-up of the episode. So, Elizabeth and Miles, where can you be found online? Uh, so we can be found at www.thelightningandthestorm.com, also on your very favorite podcatchers and all over the social medias. <clears throat> yes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. And then if you have personal Twitters or that stuff that you want to share, you can also feel free to do that. My personal Twitter is Elizabeth, with an S, E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H-F, at uh, Twitter.com. 
Uh, I, I am a ghost online. I exist only in podcast form. It has been posited that I am, in fact, just a podcast elemental and have no real human identity. Um, but you can find me through, you know, The Lightning of the Storm or my other podcast, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, which is explainthexmen.com and also Explain the X-Men all over the social medias with no E at the front, just Explain the X-Men. And Devin and I host Multiversal Q, the podcast you're listening to right now, which you can find at multiversalq.com, where we have image galleries and lots of other good bits. We also have links to uh, your guys' podcast and uh, some other interesting bits that might be uh, important. Uh, we also have links to our Patreon, which uh, supports both Multiversal Q and our spinoff podcast, Exiled, which... If you want to have more adventures of a weird version of Enchantress and also Warlock, uh, you can check that out. It is a live play RPG set in a uh, series of weird versions of the Marvel Universe. Uh, we just finished our first season, and you can either start from the beginning, start from any of our one-shot episodes, including our New Mutants one-shot episode, or with uh, Volume 7, which I'm sort of using as a brand new starting point. Our normal podcast is currently in its 100th episode, as we are covering DC 1 million, which, if you want to start there, that is a good part. Or you can start with our Age of Apocalypse coverage, which had uh, Jay contribute to it. It is a Ken Burns-style audio documentary. That is awesome. And I actually just listened to the, uh, I think it was What If the X-Men Lost the Age of Apocalypse? It was the final one you did. That was pretty great. Yes. You can find us at Multiversal Q on pretty much every form of uh, social media. Uh, Devin, where can people find you? Oh, you can find me on my personal Twitter at FredoFett. That's F-R-E-D-D-O-F-E-T-T. And Luke, where can people find you? You can find me online on Twitter at, at Coltreg. That's K-O-L-T-R-E-G. Or at my oft-neglected personal portfolio site, LukeHare, L-U-K-E-H-E-R-R dot com. And that wraps us up for this week. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. This was this was a ton of fun. Yeah, this is delightful. Thank you so much. Uh, it is great to have guests on. If you are interested in coming on as a guest, let us know. And uh, oh, there's one more thing that I wanted to share with you about the magical world of pro wrestling and the thunder frog that lives within it. Right. We had talked a little bit about this uh, online. I am intrigued. So there is uh, Chikara, which is a mostly Pennsylvania based, but they travel around the country and weirdly to the UK. And they're a very family friendly, uh, old school style wrestling. So lots of strange costumes, lots of uh, characters who are based around a job or a uh, character. And one of the characters that showed up was Thunderfrog, who was part of a team with uh, Latvarian Proud Oak and Lithuanian Snow Troll that went by the Baltic Siege. And he is pretty much Thor the Thunderfrog, including having a hammer that only the worthy can pick up. Wow. This is impressive. Yes. And it gets even crazier than that because he made friends with a character named Jarvis Cottonbelly, who is the nicest man in wrestling. Uh, he is a wrestler who actually has a cotton belly on him. A cotton belly? Yes. Like, his, you can pat his belly, and it is soft and cottony. <laughs> I, but so... is he a butler? <laughs> uh, he does wear a butler and a monocle as part of his mask. Wow. I, I, I'm so unfamiliar with wrestling, but the more I hear about it, the more I realize I, I need to learn more here. There's such glorious bizarreness. And if you really like your strange comic book continuity, this has it. Uh, there was a big event when it looked like Chikara might have actually been canceled where they ended up with a war against a group that was called the Flood. And during this uh, event, uh, there was a uh, tag team elimination match. And uh, Thunderfrog was the last man standing. He had won this match. But then uh, Deucalion, who was uh, part of this evil group, showed up and literally murdered him with a chokehold, or with a choke slam and backbreaker move. And that was the death of the character. Oh, man. Jeez. I mean, yes. I hope he went to wrestling Frog Valhalla after that. 
Well, that was not the end of his story, because another character named Icarus, who is very much your pretty boy angel type, showed up and defeated Deucalion, wielding Thunderfrog's Hammer of Peace, uh, killing him to avenge Thunderfrog's death. Uh, <laughs> Jervis Cottonbelly, his best friend, ended up using dark magic, trying to bring his friend back, because this is uh, very comic booky inspired. And at the season finale afterwards... Uh, there was a scene that had a farmer finding a uh, that had a farmer finding a caped baby frog in his backyard after a giant lightning bolt hit it. And so, in the Midwest, a wrestler named the Estonian Farmer Frog started showing up at indie shows. Uh, he uh, Chikara ended up traveling out there for a tour with Farmer Frog wrestling for the teams and having weird dreams about his identity, and then. Uh, after a cybernetico match, which is a match with a bunch of people, he ended up finding the Hammer of Peace and picked it up, which restored his memory and his identity. Wow. This is so much more elaborate than I ever would have dreamed. <laughs> I thought you were going to go with a zombie frog Thor wrestler, but this is even better. Yeah, so it is lots of fun. Uh, he was on what is called the King of Trios team that almost won with a actual Viking and with a princess who also wrestles, who uh, became one of the uh, champions that year and actually held the top title in the ring, which was fantastic, even though now she's been brought on to like actual mainstream wrestling. And uh, at the end of 2016, he was able to use his hammer of peace to destroy the big bad uh, mystical artifact, uh, saving the world, and he has not appeared back at Chikara since. Oh, man. But uh, Chikara, if you want to get into some good family-friendly wrestling, I highly recommend it. And thank you to Gavin Jasper for giving me that helpful summary. <laughs> <laughs> you have enriched our lives immeasurably. Freaking awesome. <laughs> uh, but yes, that officially wraps up the episode. So until next time... This one's for Hank. <laughs>